Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 22nd, 2016. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Doctor's Opinion. The Doctor's Opinion is the foundation of the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and of the entire AA Fellowship. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire big book doesn't make sense. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again. Joining us today to bring the doctor's opinion to life are four recovered compulsive overeaters. Our panelists include... Janice M. from Massachusetts, Esther C. from Canada, Du L. from New York, and Amy G. from Maryland. And we'll get started with the doctor's opinion, page XXV, with our first panelist, Janice M. Well, good morning to you, Leah M., and everyone that's on this line. And what a privilege it is to be on the same panel as the other recovered compulsive overeaters in a vision for you. Well, you know, the commentary that Leah just said is a, a, a great summary of the absolute truth, you know, of this uh, doctor's opinion. Um, it is the foundation. <laughs> it's the foundation of the whole book and um, the fellowship. You know, when I came in years ago, um, you know, XXD was a Roman numeral, and uh, we just went right over this, the forwards and the doctor's opinion, and went right to the how it works. So, you know, um, and the more that, you know, that I um, studied the book, um, I do believe, I do believe in my heart of hearts that this, this is the foundation. And without this, there's no sense of going on. But, of course, if you're not a real compulsive overeater, this, you know, doesn't make too much sense to you. It's just like an introduction. But for me, the real compulsive overeater, this is my foundation. And, of course, as mentioned, uh, the doctor we're talking about is Dr. William D. Silkworth. And I'm just going to pull out some sentences and comment on them, except this very first paragraph has so much in it that I will comment on that. And it's we, we of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we have to remember that, you know, the fellowship wasn't established yet and the, um, the book wasn't written yet. So we, we uh, they're talking about the people that have experienced this. They were already recovered and that's the word that we're going to expound on is the word recovered. That's why they believe that the reader who's us, that you and I, if you have a problem um, and your problem isn't solved yet, that you will be interested in the medical aspect of this uh, uh, spiritual recovery, the plan of 
recovery called the 12 steps that's in this book. Now, they were convinced. They were convinced because they, they got the results. Now, it says convincing testimony must. Now, there's a couple of musts in this first page. And, you know, people say, oh, there's no must in NOA. Well, I see two on this page. And this is the first one. And it says convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members. That means they they were suffering, but they're no longer suffering because they recovered and have witnessed a return to health. Well, that's a loaded, loaded sentence because convincing testimony um, means that, you know, there were there are validations, you know, um, there's evidence from this uh, doctor, Dr. Silky, and proof, proof, um, you know, to know something is to experience it. I mean, I, I can know of something, but to really know from my experience, and this is what Dr. Silkworth um, observed, he found the proof, he's found these people suffering. Um, they were suffering from their mind and from their body. And um, the biggest thing is he witnessed. <laughs> he witnessed, he observed. There was proof that these men and women who had this uh, uh, allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, they were returned to health, which tells me that they must have been ill in the first place to be returned to something then they, they were very sick. And that's a big thing. Um, for me, because as as myself, I, I just was not healthy, both in mind and body. So now this uh, chief, he was a chief physician, a chief medical director of this hospital that, you know, um, specialized, specialized, which means, of course, you know, if you want to get healthy and you want to, you have a problem with your tooth or uh, with whatever medical aspect of your body or mind, you go to a psychiatrist or you go to a, a dentist. But if you really want a highly skilled dentist, um, you would go to a specialist that does like, you know, does gums or, you know, is good in making teeth or whatever it is. And this particular doctor, he was a specialist. That means he was highly skilled. He had a lot, a lot of... Um, uh, proof. And um, this would be somebody that I would go to, you know, um, if I had a specific problem, I wouldn't go to, um, I want to go to the best. So this is what this, this is convincing testimony. And I believe this doctor, you know, after many years for me, uh, was a chosen skilled physician. Um, and by that, I mean, and this is just my opinion, he had so much wisdom um, way back in the 1930s that nobody else had. So to me, he was gifted, um, truly, truly gifted. Um, now, you, you know yourself, if, uh, if, if somebody, if a doctor uh, recommended a course of action, uh, cancer into remission and kept it there for millions of people when nothing since the 1930s has been found to produce the same results, that one who had cancer would be crazy not to follow his direction. And this is what this is what I've come to believe because of my experience with the disease of compulsive overeating. All right, so he, down to the third paragraph, you know, he, um, 
he met a patient. He had a patient in the hospital. And of course, we know that patient is Bill W. And he uses the word, he was an alcoholic of a type. Well, what kind of a type was he? Well, he was the type that the doctor, the doctor recognized that he was hopeless. He wanted to quit drinking, but yeah, he would, but he'd always come back. He wanted to quit, but he couldn't. Like I so many times wanted to put it down, and I did, and I was abstinent. But what happened? I couldn't keep it down. So he's talking about these alcoholics coming in and out, in and out of this hospital, and they would be all dried up, but they would go out and they'd come back again. But uh, this bill, this uh, this particular uh, patient of uh, Dr. Silky's was um, was was Bill, and he was different. He was different. And um, how did he do it? Well. He had a spiritual experience on his third treatment because he named him as hopeless. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty steep to be hopeless. Um, and he did seem hopeless um, because he was, he was so powerless. He, he wanted to do it, but he couldn't. So this, is, this whole thing is uh, step one begins here. This is where step one begins. And you know, Dr. Silkwood's contribution was indispensable, which is the foundation, as was said, of the whole fellowship in the in the big book um, when it was written. So this this particular um, patient, uh, Bill W, was in the hospital and he Silky brought all you know the, the problem. He brought the problem to Bill. You know, it's very simple. Um, from the big book that, you know, he learned that the real alcoholic has a body that can never get enough alcohol, or for me, it could never get enough donuts, and a mind that will not let me leave it alone. That is the basic problem with that I have, and uh, this is what happened to these alcoholics. They could go out, but they couldn't keep that plug in the jug. Um, and this is what happened to Bill W. while in the hospital. He was rehabilitated. He was recovered. And I think that word we're going to see so many times in this book, and we've seen it in the, in the, the preface of the book, the beginning of the book, which means that he attained the aim, the goal. Um, and what was the aim of the goal? to be recovered. To, he had a spiritual awakening as the results of these steps. So he, it's part of his rehabilitation. He didn't just do 11, 11 twelfths of the steps. He did all of the steps because the message to give is that he had a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and it, it produced a personality change sufficient to bring a recovery. Now, if you're recovering, then you're in the process to be recovered, which means you're in the process of the 12 steps. Now, recovered, I always thought, oh, recovered, that means you're all better. Well, you know, you could have a cold and go to the doctor, and he's going to give you some medication, et cetera, and, uh, but then the, the cold's going to go away, right? And you're going to be recovered from that cold. Well, with me, with my illness, I am recovered 
for today, which means I no longer have that obsession to set up that allergy by picking it up just for today, just for today. So it doesn't mean cured. Like some people say, oh, you're not recovered. Then that means that, no, it means that, you know, I can never eat certain foods because, you know, I have an allergy, which I'm going to have for eat, you know, till I die. But anyway, um, you know, recovered to what? Recovered to health, recovered to mind and body. And then he says, I personally know scores of cases who were, were, was the past of the type. Here we go again. The type like who? Like Bill, hopeless, with whom other methods have failed completely. Well, certainly I can identify with that. I mean, you know, I uh, had, I mean, we all can give our own methods of what we tried and nothing worked. So this is a fact that appears to be ex- of extreme medical importance. Um, why? Uh, because, you know, they found a, um, it says here, these men on the page XXVI, these men who are recovered, they don't say that, but that's what they're talking about, the authors. These men may well have a remedy. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be wonderful? And it did happen through the doctor's opinion, this big book. Um, We do have a a remedy um, for thousands of, of such situations because here we see that Dr. Silkworth endorses, you know, he's completely confident and he recommends on that last line, which is absolutely phenomenal. You may rely, oh my goodness, rely. I was a a great relying on people, on doctors, on food plans, on magazine articles, you know, but here in the doctor's opinion, I have relied absolutely, absolutely on anything, anything these recovered people have said reading this book and the people that I have seen and experienced in the program of recovery, a vision for you of recovered people about themselves. You know, um, I came in insane, absolutely insane, no matter when it came to food. And, um, you know, I'm leaving um, and I'm living, uh, hopefully, in a more sane state. Um, and, and it's a, a trustworthy thing. Um, what an opportunity, you know. What an opportunity. And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, um, it's all about the problem. The problem to the um, compulsive overeaters dilemma. I can't stop. Once I've started, and I can't stop from starting again. And if we miss this, which, of course, I went over, over this, you know, for years. I didn't even know about it. So the doctor is recommending a course of action of the problem and the solution. How hopeless this condition can be and how that you can believe in the um, in the solution because of his observation of Bill. And if it wasn't for Dr. Dr. Silkworth, you know, the little doctor who loved drunks, you know, uh, his contribution was indispensable. And, um, you know, alcoholics are drawn to him and they to him. And he was drawn to the alcoholics. And uh, with that, I will pass. Thanks. 
Thank you very much, Janice M. Continuing with our study, Esther C. Hi, good morning, Leah. Good morning, my friends. Thank you. My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. So we'll pick up the text on XXVI, starting with the words, the physician. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter, has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement that follows. So the authors are giving us an introduction to the next statement that that Dr. Silkworth is going to make. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So these authors are very good teachers because they keep repeating the same thing over and over, and we're going to see that in these two pages and, of course, in the entire big book. Um, They make statements, they back it up with um, their experience, and then they make the statement again. And I guess they know how thick-headed we alcoholics and compulsive overeaters must be. But here we go. The body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So it's going to tell us, start to teach us about our problem. It did not, back in the big book, it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or we were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent for some, with some of us. So this is my, this is my experience as well. Um, it didn't satisfy me to know more about myself. I've spent a lot of time in therapy, and I spent a lot of time analyzing my motives and my thinking, but it didn't help me because it didn't explain why I had a problem with food and why I couldn't stop eating when I wanted to stop eating, or when I, when I was stopped, I couldn't stay stopped. So here we're being introduced to the idea that there's something more than our minds that that's causing the problem, Um it's letting us know that something is wrong with our body, too. Now, he's not going to tell us just yet what it is, but this is by way of introduction. So back in the big book, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So now he's telling us that we've got a physical problem as well, and that any solution to our problem is going to include or take into consideration this physical factor. Now, they haven't defined what it is yet. It's going to be in a couple of pages, but it's what we know today as abstinence. And so to rephrase this sentence, and this is critical, this is highlighted in my big book, if my solution doesn't include this physical factor, then my solution is incomplete. I will not be able to apply the solution without this physical factor. This is the first time at least as far as I see in this chapter where we're told in um, very clear terms that we've got a twofold problem and that the that the we need to address the physical aspect of our problem back in the book let's continue to read the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us as layman our opinion as to its soundness may of course mean little But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. So there's more introduction to prepare us for Dr. Silkworth's theory on the allergy of the body, which, by the way, um, Bill had not known about or had not occurred to him all the years that he was um, drinking. Um, And again, it's going to be explained more to us, this idea of the allergy, in a couple of pages, but... Like the authors, I also don't know much science, and I'm not a prof- 
professional, but I am a recovered person. And when it says here it explains many things for which we not account for which, which we cannot otherwise account, I felt also that being taught about my physical allergy explained for me why I ate even though I didn't want to. And it explained to me why I ate even though I was suffering because of the food and why I ate because I hurt others and why I ate even though I tried to stop and why I ate even though I was intelligent and successful in other areas and knew that I had a problem. So this idea of the allergy suddenly sets a light bulb off in my head. And it's something that we all kind of get excited to hear when we come into program. We get into the rooms, we're taught about um, the fact that we have a disease and that there's a physical component, and we're like, yes, that's why. That's, that, that explains things that I couldn't explain till now. All right, back in the book. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So it looks like before someone's approached altogether to solve his drinking problem, his mind must be clear. It can't be fogged up with alcohol or, in our case, our binge foods. So, I mean, he's, they speak about it in a very mild terms. They say more often than not, and then you have a better chance of understanding and accepting. But the fact that it's repeated here now for the second time, you know, in one page, teaches me that it's important. <laughs> um, so whatever I need to do to get abstinent, and I guess for some of these alcoholics, hospitalization was the answer, Is there, you know, that's critical because, again, before I can implement the solution, I need to take care of the physical aspect of my disease. As, as I was reading this paragraph this morning, I thought the first sentence, you know, caused me to take a second look here because it says here, though we work out our solution on a spiritual plane, we favor hospitalization. I thought to myself that that sentence doesn't really make sense. What's the connection between the fact that our work is altruistic, that the spiritual work is altruistic, and that and that the what does that have to do with the fact that um, an alcoholic needs to get sober before the solution can be implemented? So to me, that it was sort of an insight, and that is that that um, we, those of us who work on a um, on an altruistic plane, we can't help you if your mind is not clear. Meaning, we're here to help and do whatever we can, um, but we can't help you if 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 your mind is not clear. We're you know we're sort of powerless to, to sort of take you further or to bring to you to where we are today if your mind is still fogged up by the food, by the alcohol. All right, now we're over on page XXVII. The doctor writes, okay, finally, we're getting to the doctor's actual letter, moving out of the introductory, prefatory remarks by the author. Okay, what does the doctor write? The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral, moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. 
So the problem, uh, the solution to the problem is going to, you know, for these um, alcoholics is going to involve some type of what they call moral psychology, which he, Dr. Silkworth, admits is way beyond, you know, the synthetic knowledge of, of physicians. Um, doctors are good, and, and in many ways I believe they're getting better, but here is the admission that with their training, they're not equipped to necessarily to access or apply spiritual matters to help the alcoholic, you know, the, the things that we're going to read about in this book. So that's a humble admission of their limitation, but yet um, over on the next page he is going to talk about the physical aspect because in that area he's got much experience and much to say. All right, back in the book. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application. So these are ideas that Ebby had spoken to him about and the spiritual journey that he facilitated, that Ebby facilitated for Bill. On with the text. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients, to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So the doctors couldn't do it, but for these alcoholics or for compulsive overeaters like us, we recovered compulsive overeaters we can bring these people back from the gates of death. And by the way, if there's three little points here which is, could be um, qualifications for to be a good message carrier. Are you a good message carrier? Unselfishness of these men. So we have to um, be in a state of unselfishness, entire absence of profit motive, and community spirit. So this, these three little points here, it's a good spot check to see if one is, uh, you know, um, sort of on the mark when they're carrying the message. Okay, the last little paragraph here that I'll read. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be a maximum benefit. So there's that pesky reminder again. The author said it twice in his introduction to the doctor's words, and now the doctor is telling it to us again, and that is, is that... I need to be freed from my physical craving for liquor. I need to address the physical aspect of my disease before psychological measures can be a maximum benefit. Now, here they're recommending hospitalization. For some of us, that might be necessary. For many alcoholics, it, um, it was. Now, my experience did not include a hospital stay, but there were are things that I had to do in the initial stages of recovery in order to stay, get abstinent and stay abstinent. I had to limit Let's say the type of things I baked for my family, for others. I limited vacations for many, a long, long time. I did not eat out at restaurants. I did not eat out in other people's homes. I had to limit, let's say, other purchases so that I would be able to afford to, you know, to buy things that were sort of ready to go, you know, cut up vegetables because I found it, uh, you know, I wasn't used to preparing nutritious food. I was just used to opening bags and eating out of bags. So I needed to, you know, spend more money for that. I immersed myself in program, limiting all my other social activities until I was stabilized in my abstinence and more used to you know, eating in that way. I spent hours a day doing my tools, and this is where the tools come in handy, phone calls, meetings, etc. You know, it seems pretty clear to me from these two paragraphs that we, that we read is that I need to be abstinent to be free from the physical problem in order to move on 
to the spiritual solution, and that's the step work. And so coming up on the next two pages, a little bit more excitement is more on the physical allergy, and we're going to learn just what I should and shouldn't be eating. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Esther C. And we now continue our study on page XXVIII, first paragraph, with our third panelist, Du L. Good morning. Good morning. Do we do not hear you? Star one to unmute. Do L, star one to unmute. It appears that Do is having some technical difficulties, perhaps temporarily. Uh, Esther C., if you'd like to continue the study until Du can return. Okay, good morning again. Um, so if Du gets on, she'll just pick up where we, wherever we leave off. Um, on the top of page XXVIII, the paragraph starts, this is a critical paragraph here, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So this is an amazing paragraph because it's teaching me what my physical problem is. And here, Dr. Silkworth calls it an allergy. And when it comes to allergies, there's all kinds of allergies. Each allergy has a manifestation. So what does that mean? Some people I know who are allergic to nuts, the manifestation of their allergy would be, you know, blocked up airways. And another, someone else that I know who has a strawberry, allergy to strawberries, manifestation of their disease is that they get a, a skin rash and um, and so on. My allergy, the manifestation of my allergy, is something called the phenomena of craving. Now, normally the word craving out there is used to describe a feeling that we get when we want something. I've got a craving to eat this and I've got a craving for that. But in the big book and in the 12-step program of recovery, the term phenomena of craving is used to describe what happens to me when I um, trigger my allergy by ingesting my binge foods. So for the alcoholics, it's alcohol. For me, it's my binge foods, I guess, which will be talked about a little bit later. But um, when I eat my binge foods, I experience something called phenomena of craving. And my understanding of that means um, what 
phenomenon of craving means? What does it mean when I have something called the phenomenon of craving? It means that I can no longer predict or or expect if I uh, predict if I'm going to stop or when I'm going to stop. Um, most people can enjoy um, you know foods that they like, even sweet foods or whatever it is, you know, junk food. They could take a bite and they'll say, "I think I'm going to have a half of this or a piece of that," and they have it. But when I ingest my binge foods, once I've eaten them, I'm off to the races. I have no idea. Maybe I'll be able to stop this time. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll have one. Maybe I'll have um, a whole pack. Maybe I'll have a whole case. I have no way of predicting. So that's the, um, that's what the manifestation of my allergy is. And it's very clear here that because of that, I can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Because I can't control what happens to me and what happens in my relationship to this food once I've taken a bite, I can that's it. I, it's something that, I, that can never change about me. Once something becomes my binge food, it can never not become my binge food. This is what the doctor's opinion is taking us here. And this is contrary to what people believe, that years of abstinence somehow should enable, allow us to, to, you know, to pick up some of our uh, foods that we haven't eaten for many years. That's not what it's telling us here. Once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things hu- human, their problems pile up on them and, they, and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So once I've got this problem with my allergy, then the rest of my life becomes impossible. So it's not only that um, I'll be fighting, that if I choose to ignore this, I'll be fighting the food for, for you know forevermore, but that every other aspect of my life is going to be affected by it. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So I was someone who was subject to a lot of frothy emotional appeal because I was fat all my my entire life, like almost four decades till I came into the program of recovery. And you can imagine that people would say to me, you know, it was all. What about your health? And they would tell me how I, you know, I was so pretty if I could just lose some weight. Um, that didn't do anything for me. If something, something, when I came into the program of recovery, it took a bit of time until I was actually um, brought to the doctor's opinion was brought to my attention. It was explained to me. I'm here. Okay. I'll just finish up my sentence, but at that point, I felt like that makes sense. Everything else that people told me didn't seem to sit with me, but that did. Thanks, Leah. I'll pass. Esther, we thank you very much. And now our third panelist, Duel. Again, we're on page XXVIII, and we'll return to the first paragraph for reinforcement. Thank you very much, Du. Do L. Star one to unmute, do. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, great. (laughs) I'm just talking away. (laughs) I I, I can hear you. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Welcome, and, and please begin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I don't know how much you guys heard, but I'll give an overview again of, of what I was sharing. I um, just wanted to keep my timer here for a minute. If you just give me a second. Um, 
Oh, I do that. Okay. So, um, okay. So, what I, I was mentioning is that I'm going to mention four points. What is the problem? Um, what does entire abstinence mean? And why is it that when I want to stop, I can't? And what do I need to do to overcome the vicious cycle of compulsive eating? And one of the things that um, the big book brings out uh, here, it says that we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of the alcoholics on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. That phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temper drinker. So what does that mean? You know, um, as I was mentioning, they, there's a lot of fancy words that people like to throw around, uh, biological, physiological, and psychological. They all mean one thing, or, or two things, I should say. The, the doctor's opinion puts it very simply. It's body, and it's also the mind. Um, so the biological has to do with my body organs, my functions, my liver, my kidneys, the way um, my blood processes things. And physiological is the reactions that my body has in, you know, when I take certain substances. Um, psychological is the mental processes. It's my behaviors, my emotions, my habits, my thinking about how I think about the food, right? So the big book keeps it very simple. It says body and mind. So that's what I need to understand. And then my reaction to that is called an allergy. What is an allergy? High sensitivity and abnormal high sensitivity to certain substances. So if I introduce those substances into my body, I react to that substance. Um, and one of the key examples is, you know, uh, when I have an allergic reaction, uh, it says that the average temperate drinker, it never occurs to them. Never means not even one time. At any time, it does not occur. Uh, but for someone like me, it occurs all the time, right? Like if I, if I put something in, uh, for instance, uh, I'll give you a true live example. Um, you know, I, I had this, uh, this sinus problem, right, with my nose. And for many, many years, I had this sinus problem. I come into recovery, and I decide I'm going to take care of this sinus problem finally, right? So I go to the doctor. I ask the doctor to give me a, something for it. And she gives me the spray bottle. I've never used a spray bottle ever in my life. But I decide to use the spray bottle. And when I use the spray bottle, I have a reaction to that spray, right? Like when I sprayed it in, all of a sudden I get dizzy, I start sweating, my heart starts beating fast, um, I start having a reaction to that. But you see, my mental process tells me the lies, the excuses, the justifications to get back into that, right? You would think that's insane, right? If I have an allergic reaction, that I would stop, right? So what happened to me? I, I think, well, you know what? I think my body just needs to get used to the spray. So I continue to use the spray to a point where I get a rash and I need to be rushed to the hospital because I stopped breathing. Now, you would think that's an insane way of, of doing that, right? Normal person has a reaction, they stop. They never take that again. But for me, as a compulsive eater, I'm, I'm the same way with the food. I take in the food, I have a reaction. What is my reaction? I want more and more and more of the same. 
Do I stop? No, I do not stop because my mind tells me I can beat the game. I can do this over and over and over again, and I'm going to find some way to beat that allergic reaction. Well, it says here, you know, that if I am that type, I can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And that leads me to the next point. What is entire abstinence? Entire means to be whole, to be complete, to refrain from something. And in, in my case, it's my key food ingredients, right? I need to keep away from them. I need to surrender the control over those binge foods. I need to give them up. I need to get away from them. And, um, and it says I can't use it in any form at all. What does that mean? What are some examples of that? Well, you know, entire means whole and complete means I can't be halfway pregnant. You know, either I am or I'm not. You know, I can't put in a vending machine part of the money and expect the product to come out if I don't put the entire money in. So it needs to be 100%, right? Um, and I can't use it in any form at all. So that means I can't introduce the, the key food ingredients that cause me a reaction to want more and more. There are certain foods that I don't have a reaction to. Um, Brussels sprouts. I don't have a reaction to Brussels sprouts, right? I don't go out seeking those Brussels sprouts. I don't go out thinking about those Brussels sprouts. I never even want to have Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but when my binge foods, is, it's like I want them and I'm seeking for them, and, I, and once I have them in my body, I go off to the races. So here it's saying that I can't have it in any form at all. That means I can't bake it, I can't boil it, I can't freeze it, I can't fry it. Some examples of that is some people would say, well, I can have it in the fifth ingredient, which, by the way, that's a false, false um, advertisement, right? Um, because the food industry spends $8 billion a year coming up with words that you can't even pronounce to include sugar, to include salt, and to include um, fat in there, okay? And so you don't know what you're having. You may think it's the fifth ingredient because you can read the word, but, but all in all, you may be having other substances in there that equal the amount of sugar. So by the time you get to the fifth ingredient, you might have it in the third, the fourth, or the tenth, and they all equal one accumulation of sugar. So that's one of the ways. There's another uh, belief that, you know, I could have, you know, red, yellow, and green lights. There's no such thing as yellow foods, okay? Uh, the big book is very clear about that, right? It says that I can never have these in any form at all, right? But the, what, what does that equal to when I say yellow foods? It means that I'm playing around my, with my food, you know? Um, it's either red, I can't have it at all, or it's green, it's good to go. But, you know, with our diseases, like, you know, it says there's no middle of the road. Either I go through, you know, my compulsive eating to blot out the consciousness of my intolerable situation, or I accept help. I'm either doomed or I get help. You know, those are my two options. There's no door number three where I think that, you know, that I'm going to, um, where I'm going to have the magic pill. Right, because that's what my mind tells me all the time that I'm going to find a way to have these foods and and be content with it. That I'm going to beat the game. Well, that's not what my disease tells me because the disease will bring me into a state of reasonableness. Now, uh, there are other there are other things. Um, 
that I need to stay away from. And, and if I just stay away from three or four food ingredients, right, that are killing me, and I just stay with one or two in my pocket trying to control it, it's still not being entirely abstinent. Entire means I need to give up everything, everything, everything. So, um, you know, and it doesn't mean also that I tend to think that it's a behavior, right? Because it says it's physical and it's mental. It's both. A behavior falls under the mental. So if I leave out the physical, my disease is not complete because I have a body and a mental condition. And so I need to address both. So it says here that having formed a habit, and what is the habit? I continue to compulsively eat. You know, then everything becomes unmanageable. Now, why is it that I can't stop when I start? Well, it says here men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. See, it's not because I like my foods that I compulsively eat because I ate a lot of foods that I didn't like. I ate from the garbage. I ate foods that, you know, I picked up from the floor. That's not why, that's not what makes me a compulsive eater. What makes me a compulsive eater is that I like the buzz and the high that I get from certain foods, okay? And, and my mind tells me it's okay. My mind tells me this time it's going to be different. Right? It says the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they can't after time differentiate the truth from the false. So what, why do I eat? Because I keep believing the lie that this time it will be different. I keep believing the justifications and the excuses. Well, maybe if I put a little bit of um, alcohol in, in, in milk, then that will be okay. So if I put a little bit of sweetener into my tea or my coffee, that's going to be okay, right? So it's saying here, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. That's the lie that I believe too, that as, as soon as I practice these behaviors and, and I think this way, that it's going to be okay. And then it says they're restless and irritable unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes from taking a few drinks, which they see others take with impunity. You know, they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomena of craving develops. So, um, and then they come out remorseful, saying they're not, never going to do it again with the resolution. So what does that mean? What does that translate into? That translates that as soon as I put in any substance, any substance that I go off to the races with, I'm going to trigger the allergy. It's going to be a reaction, okay? If I never put it in, I don't have the phenomenal craving. But I have something greater than that, and it's called the mental obsession. And let me tell you something. Uh, this was very key, key, important to understand about my disease. The disease is twofold, Okay. So the mental obsession, I mean, the, the mental obsession will manifest, and it will be dominant at certain times. And then the physical, if I introduce certain foods into my body, will also become dominant. So maybe one lowers, and then the other one raises, but they're all interchangeable. I'm having it at the same time, and that's the insanity, that I go around this hamster wheel over and over, repeating the same thing over and over and over again 
hoping against all hope that it will change. But one of the things that I've learned uh, through this process is that unless I have an entire psychic change, there's little hope of recovery. You know, so that leads me to my last point. What do I need to do to overcome this vicious cycle of compulsive eating? Well, the, the big book talks about here that unless that person who seemed doomed of ever solving his problems can have an entire psychic change and follow these simple few rules. What are the simple few rules? The steps. I have to come through three conclusion steps, and then I have to take four through nine action steps. And then I have to maintain that through 10, 11, and 12. Um, if I don't seek out a solution, which is in a power greater than myself, um, I can't come up with that. So it's, it's telling me that I can't produce this myself. I need something greater than myself to be able to produce that psychic change. You know, so that means that my mental uh, faculty does not respond to ordinary psychological approaches. That means no therapist, no diet club, no, no, um, no self-will, no self-control is going to help me to overcome my compulsive eating. I need something outside of myself to be able to do that. And so um, the big book gives me the exact approach of how to overcome my compulsive eating. And the first thing I need to start off with is the body which means I need entire abstinence. I need to start with my part, and then God takes care of the rest, which is the mental, which is myself, the self-will, the self, um, the thinking that I can control it, the thinking that I can do it myself. So one of the things that this big book and this doctor's opinion is going to help me to see is, one, what is the problem? The problem is that I have an insane way of, uh, eating my foods and an insane way of thinking around my foods. The second point is that I need to be entirely abstinent. It means completely, wholly refraining from these key food ingredients. And third is the fact that I can't stop because I have a vicious cycle that keeps me in the disease constantly. And unless I have a psychic change, a higher power that's going to restore me through these steps, Step by step, I will not overcome my compulsive eating. And I hope that was helpful, and I'll pass it on to the next baton. Thank you very much, Duell. And we will continue our study of the doctor's opinion on the bottom of page XXIX with our fourth and final panelist, Amy G. Good morning, Leah. My name is Amy. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Great, great. Um, well, I could just say ditto to the other three panelists. So awesome. Uh, I'm also going to drill down on these last couple pages of the big book. Again, if we were to look at the doc op and we were to equate it with the step, it would be step one, admitted we were powerless. We admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. And that's what the doc op is about. It's the description of the compulsive overeater. It's the description of me. And it's, again, reinforcing the idea of the twofold nature of the disease, the mental obsession and then the physical allergy. And for my part here, we're really drilling down on the physical aspect of this disease. 
back to Roman numeral 24, as other panelists have mentioned, in our book, any picture of the alcoholic or compulsive overeater, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. And that is absolutely the case for me as well when we're describing the allergy um, that Du was talking about. Again, if we go to this first paragraph, it says, I do not hold on page uh, Roman numeral 27. I do not believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked for a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain day favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving. You'll notice craving. And to say they mean something by these is a very important statement. So from Roman numeral uh, 27 through 28, craving and phenomenon of craving, those words are used six times. They're talking about a phenomenon of craving. And, and, of course, I always go to the dictionary. I love looking at the dictionary because I'm saying, look, they're trying to tell us something here. It's being said like six times. So craving, when I look it up in the dictionary, it's a powerful desire for something or interchangeable with desire is lust, ache, need. It even describes hunger because often when we think, even in the normies out there, when they think of craving something, they're often craving a particular food. But I understand what that means specifically. When you describe phenomenon, phenomenon in the dictionary is something special, completely different, or extremely unusual. So put it together, say that I had a powerful, ache, hunger, need for my binge foods and my binge food ingredients created something special to me is an understatement reaction. Let me give you an example, and I'll never forget the most horrific binges. They were all horrific. But this, I, I knew about OA. I knew about what the compulsive overeating meant. You know, they say OA is like the mafia. Once you get in, you never go out, get out because you know too much and it ruins all your binges. I'm three years struggling in OA. I still had another two years of torture to go, but I'm three years in. I knew a lot about OA, but I didn't want to work the steps. I was doing a kind of buffet style, you know, half measures avail us nothing. Well, that's what I was getting. I was focused on the abstinence. I was focused on the weight, and that's all I really wanted to deal with. So I stayed restless, irritable, and discontent. I don't know what happened, something triggered me, and I found myself in the grocery store, walking down aisles that I said I would And one of those, and I'm going to date myself, the bulk food aisles. They used to have barrels of bulk health food in these barrels. And I thought to myself, this is my mental obsession at work here, that carob-covered raisins was not chocolate, so therefore it was not sugar, so therefore I could have it. Raisins, raisins, hey, folks, I have in my food. I'm going to have fruit, and then I'm going to put it in a bag, and I'm going to weigh it. It's a measured, does that sound? Well, of course it did to me. And so remember, this warped with such destruction for this compulsive overeating in my binge food, what seems sane, what seems what seems insane is sane. And that's what I reason to. 
go into the grocery I come out of the grocery store and I say to myself, I'm going to sit in my car. I'm going to eat these one at a time. And, of course, two handfuls, gone. Okay? I call it the craving for more or the chasing the next few bites because what happens? Might as well have been in a dark parking lot with a needle in my arm because that sense of ease and comfort that Du was talking about, that's what hit me. That was my abnormal reaction because it triggered for me a craving. So, of course, I find myself without even thought back to the grocery store. But instead of the covered, the um, carob-covered raisins, try saying that five times fast, I also added in Entenmann pastries because my triple whammy was sugar, fat, and volume. So a couple of Entenmann pastries along with the weighed measured bag of carob-covered raisins in the grocery store aisle at the checkout. I'm craving. I cannot stand still. I am jumping out of my skin. I want that ease and comfort. The line is pissing me off. There's too many people. Go to the next line. Find the shortest line. Practically running to the car, getting in the car, putting the food in my mouth before I eat no or dropping the food on the floor, picking it up off of dirty ground, and sticking it in my mouth. That was on my mental control. And as a bulimic, the binge goes on because I filled my up with those foods, I went in the way to the grocery store for and on Amy's torture and her next relapse for the and on and on I went. This was the phenomenon of craving, and it's explained perfectly in the paragraph on Roman numeral page twenty eight. It's here, and I call it the "It's all right here" paragraph. And they cannot start drinking or developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be a manifest of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief, relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This describes me to a T. My body, as dude said, had a chemical, physical reaction. It was an allergy, an abnormal reaction. And that allergy was the developing the phenomenon of craving, that craving, that desire, that ache, that need, which resulted in an extremely special and unusual reaction, which is I couldn't get enough. And let me stop here for a second. The prior paragraphs talk about this classification of an alcoholic and then the seething cauldron of debate. I don't go there with that because the bottom line is I don't care if I abuse my binge food to the point of creating this allergy or whether I was born with it. I just know that I got it. As in that paragraph, we have one symptom in common is this and, of course, the mental obsession. I'm not looking for what's different. I'm looking for where I relate in. Are those two things? Amy, I'm just going to – I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to – Ask if you could adjust, or it's you're breaking up just a bit. Oh crap! Um, um, does that sound better? I moved my chair over. How about that? Let's try it. Okay, just let me know because sometimes I don't know. It's raining really, really hard here, and I have trouble at my house sometimes. So just let me know. Um, I get so excited, I'm moving around my hands and stuff. That probably does something too. Anyway, this idea. Of- it doesn't matter. I'm looking for what is in the same, and that is the allergy and the, phys- the physical allergy and the mental obsession. 
And those two things are what I know to be true for me. And, you know, we're not going to get into that debate. And if you're curious, if you don't know whether you're an alcoholic, I mean, the big is clear or compulsive overeater, go to page 31 and more about alcoholism. It says here, here's what you can do if you're not sure. We do not like to pronounce any individual as an alcoholic or a compulsive overeater, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room or the buffet and try some controlled eating or drinking of your favorite binge foods. Try to eat and stop abruptly. Try more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it and may be well worth the case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. Why are they so sure that they just to make sure? Because they know, like I know, that if I have the physical allergy in my body, that when I put my binge food ingredients in my body, it's going to trigger that allergy. And when I trigger that allergy, maybe not that moment, but sooner or later, I am, well, for me, it was that moment, I'm going to trigger that physical allergy, and I am not going to be able to stop. And the key in this paragraph is it says here, entire abstinence. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Again, as was clearly stated earlier by the panelists, is that it's 100%, okay, where people who have lost their legs may never grow new ones. It's a done deal. Our brain needs to be cleared. Said that on Roman numeral 24. We don't work our way through the steps to become abstinent. It has to be abstinent first. Our brain cleared. But remember, we also need a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The same person will eat again. Abstinence is absolutely, 100%, entire abstinence is the beginning. But it has to start there. It's only the beginning. It's the prerequisite. But nothing starts without it. Remember, it says here, it says relief. It says relief. It doesn't say fixed. It doesn't say cured. It doesn't say recovered. It says relief. This is where, folks, we get started. So when I think of abstinence, we're talking about abstinence, I need to define it. What is my abstinence? I'm paraphrasing from the abstinence pamphlet or what Overeaters Anonymous says, so it's not verbatim. But for me, it's refraining from binge foods while maintaining a healthy weight and a healthy lifestyle. For me, that is incredibly important. So if I'm defining what that abstinence is and refraining from my binge foods, I need to define what are my binge foods. Those are my allergic substances that create the phenomenon of craving, that unusual special reaction to those foods that I crave, ache, need, and hope for, that chemical for me, that was sugar, wheat, flour, high fat, and volume. Now, volume can be a real tricky one, but for me as a bulimic, I had to have boundaries around my food plan to know when a food plan, when a, when a meal started and when a meal stopped. It wasn't that my hunger or I'm full button was broken. It was. But what was really broken was the I'm going to stop, start now and I'm going to stop now. Those buttons were completely broke because I could start and I could once I start. So for me, those are particular that I had to have a food plan for that would put boundaries around my food. Somewhere, somehow, as a compulsive reader, we have to have boundaries. For some of those, those are more specific but they do not have my trigger ingredients and they know when I know when a meal starts and I know when a meal stops. So again, doomed if this is me and this is me described perfectly, I am doomed. Put the nail in the coffin, seal it and put me in the ground because I am done. It is already said in the doc op here that we are beyond 
human aid. But hope cometh, okay, folks? Hope cometh. Because it says here on page Roman numeral 29, what is the solution? And what I love about these writers was so brilliant is they don't go into how it works at this point. They go into the results. They give us hope. They help me identify in. If I didn't identify in with this knowledge of what they're explaining and the description of the compulsive overeater, here we have two examples of the incredible results. Let me give you one here. This guy had lost everything, gastric hemorrhage, and okay, following, note, following the elimination, 100% elimination of alcohol, he accepted the plan outlined in this book, and he called to see me, and he said, I knew the man by name. I partly recognized his feature, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I love that word, contentment, peace, freedom from the obsession. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger. This is what I call, and what I have written in my big book, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And that's what this guy was. He was unrecognizable to the doctor. Just to give you an example, my kids, you know, I have been blessed to have absent pregnancies. I have teenagers now. And now that they're older, I've explained more along the lines about the disease of compulsive overeating. They know I'm in, they, they know I go to meetings, they know I sponsor people. And on occasion, I will say something to them like, oh, I used to binge on that, or I'm describing something about the disease of compulsive overeating. And it's hilarious because they look at me like I have three heads because they don't know the compulsive, active compulsive overeating Amy. I am a completely different person. I'm recovered, not cured. I have that. But the deal is they don't know me because I am a completely transformed person because of the wonderful program of this Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. So hope is here, folks. There's another example. Read it. You're on your own and know that hope is here. Hope is in this book. And then we go to however. He did become sold on the ideas contained in this book and has not had a drink for a great many years. Sold is in quotes. And I love it because when we buy something, for me, if we're sold on the instructions in this book, there's, there's no refunds, folks, you know. We, we buy in. And that doesn't, you know, we buy into what the has to say. And we do it with 100%. You know, it talks about it and how it works. We stood at the turning point. You know, and there comes a decision. Are we going to work this program like our lives depend upon it? And for me, that was absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. And it says here, I earnestly advise you, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and through, and sorry, excuse me. I earnestly advise alcoholics to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. And I just want to say that, you know, I see, I see a couple things when I read that paragraph and you know maybe maybe doc maybe doc, maybe dr silkworth kind of scoffed when he these these ideas were presented to him but like everyone has said he had put it there was nowhere else for him to go he knew that there was nothing else that he could do to help these alcoholics because he tried everything he had cleared their brains he had defogged their brains and their bodies and yet they kept going back out because of the mental obsession so i almost feel like after seeing the results, he's handing, he's handing it off to this program. He's handing off even all of his knowledge of being a doctor. He's handing it off to us. 
And he's saying, I earnestly, again, if we look up the description of earnest, you know, it's, it's a sincere and intense conviction. He is convicted that this program works, and he intensely, earnestly asks us to read through as the reader to take a look at what this book has to offer. Because if we follow them, we have a chance of being recovered where they couldn't do it. So he's saying, you know what? Hang in there. Read it through. And again, there's been a lot of talk about the physical aspect. It has to start. It's a prerequisite. But the same person, we have to learn how it is changed. About what it was like. If we go to page 52, and my sponsor did this to me, so if you want to thumb through the pages, it's pretty cool. It says here, what the bedevilments were. What was I like? The food I was putting in my body here, folks. What was I like? Well, let's see. Trouble with personal relationships. Couldn't control my emotional nature. The living. Had a feeling of uselessness. Uselessness, to say the least. Full of fear. Unhappy. Couldn't be real help to anyone. I mean, who I was and how I reacted. But if we hold on to page 52, and then go to page 83 and hold those pages in between your fingers. Lift your big book up. That is the work that needs to be done to get to the beginning of the promises. And you can read the promises on your own. This is the work that needs to be done. These few pages, if we're willing to follow the instructions. And again, just to, just to wrap up, what is the up? They call it the description of the alcoholic. It says here, our description of the alcoholic, which means the doc op, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our lives. B, probably no one in power believed our alcoholism. And C, God could and would if he were sought. And that, of course, through the the 12 steps. So let's put the food down. Let's get down to the business of working the steps. Hold up your big book. And let's get. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Amy G. Thanks to all our panelists, and their contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. So stay tuned for that. We will now transition to questions. If you have a question for our panelists, you can uh, direct your question to any of our panelists and press star one to unmute and identify yourself, please. Kathleen W. from Arizona. Kathleen W., one moment. Anyone else? Shoshana K. Katie from G. Maryland. Shoshana K., Katie G. Anyone else? Ruth M. from Oklahoma. Ruth M. Okay. Well, let's get started with Kathleen W. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, this um, question is for Amy G. How old were your kids when you explained this malady to them? And how old, I mean, how did you explain it? My daughter's 10 and she's starting to ask questions and she's kind of confused why mommy um, doesn't eat like the other mommies. So I just want to get your take on that. Thank you. Um. Yeah, I mean, basically, I feel like actions speak louder than words. You know, they never saw me any different uh what I did when I used my food plan. And it all started with mom doesn't eat sugar. She's allergic. 
You know, it doesn't it doesn't sit well with her. And then it moved on to and um, you know, those fats and those things. I'm much better if I keep things in a cup and kind of like a game with them. When they were younger, they just that's just what they saw. So they don't really they didn't know anything different. By the grace of God, they'd never seen me binging or as an active compulsive overeater. So what was normal to them was my abstinence. And as they got older and of course they're in the learning about addictions and things like that, I would then elaborate when they asked me. Um, uh, I volunteer gory details, but uh, I would volunteer that that's what Amy, that's what mommy that's what mom did, and now she's grateful to have a program because they start asking questions about going to meetings and things like that, and I would basically say something but not too much. That was always my rule: something but not too much. And I would wait till they asked me, and I would be honest and straightforward. I would keep gory details out, and as they've gotten older, as teenagers. I've elaborated more by using opportunities when they are having struggles with a friend who has an addiction or I had a daughter. My daughter came to me when she said that she has a friend of hers who's puking in the bathroom. So that gave me an opportunity to not only enlighten about my story, but use it as an opportunity to educate her as well. I hope that helps. Thank you, Kathleen W. Shoshana Kay, your turn. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone. I had a question about the physical allergy, the chemical reaction part of this. Um, I was taught years ago from one of my sponsors that that adrenaline gets released in the blood that causes a chase after whatever that substance is that we're chasing. Um, so I just wanted to know um, personally what goes on in the body with and what your experience is with that from any of the panelists. Thank you. This is Esther C. I could make a comment. Thank you. You know, I don't know a lot of science, and I don't think the program of recovery one should require um, to know exactly the effect of the foods that come into our body because it's not just food ingredients that cause a reaction, but it's sometimes certain types of food, like certain crunchy foods for me. As I've mentioned before, a baked potato doesn't doesn't trigger me, but maybe that potato sliced really thin, baked in the oven, you know, till it becomes crunchy could have an effect. And I'm not sure that in my body it's registering the difference between a baked potato and, and potato chips. So I think that the best... Um, thing for me was just to refer back to the doctor's opinion on page Roman numeral 28, that paragraph which says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So however, whatever the effect is in my brain, and I I think today they have MRIs where, you know, showing, you know, different reactions in the brain when people eat certain things, hear certain things, or smell certain things, whatever that is, all I have to know is that I eat those um, binge foods are eaten in compulsive ways because of the effect that's produced by them. So when determining which foods I should and shouldn't eat, I don't so much look to like medical, uh, um, you know, backup as much as I looked through my own experience. And is this a food that could produce a reaction in me? And that, and if it if it is, and I don't eat it, whether or not there's some physiological explanation for it. So I hope that that's um, helpful, and I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Do go ahead. 
Uh, good morning, just to do like to address that. Yeah, um, you know, uh, they've done a lot of studies on, you know, parts of the brain. Um, they have this particular part of the brain, I, I forgot the name of it, but uh, they've done um, scientific research where they say that there is a part of the brain that if you introduce certain key food, key foods, it will cause you to compulsively eat. I mean, like it will literally cause this uh, reaction, right, in the body. And and most people have it. I mean, like, you know, um, they, they, they tend to uh, indulge in overeating at times, right? Um, but the difference, in, and I want to explain the difference between someone like me and someone that is a normal eater. Um, if you're talking scientifically, if you eliminate those binge foods, if you eliminate those foods for a normal eater, they do not have the reaction anymore. They do not obsess. They do not think about the food. They do not uh, desire those foods. They just eliminate those foods that cause that reaction, right? For someone like me, that does not work because once I get started, there's no way I'm going to be able to stop unless I practice entire abstinence, all right? And even when I practice entire abstinence, that's not necessarily enough for someone like me because something happens to me also mentally. Mentally, the way I think around the food, I obsess over it. I think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it until I get back into the food. And then I tell myself lies and justify and make excuses, right? I have an unsound reasoning around the food. And that's the greater aspect for me as a compulsive eater, that I not only have something physiological, biological, right? I also have something psychological. And the psychological part is that I have a very strange way of looking at my foods, eating my foods, and behaving around my foods. Um, so if you're like me, who is a compulsive eater, um, just addressing the biological, just addressing the body is not enough. You have to address both. And I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Do. Thank you, Shoshana K. for the question. Katie G., your turn. Hey, Leah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, this is for any of the, the panelists that this applies to, and just want to thank all of you um, for your outstanding outline of the, the doc op. Um, so my question is this, right? So food, right, I get it. Flour, sugar, quantities, I'm there with you. But what I really appreciated was at some point when Overeaters Anonymous decided to um, – <clears throat> expand their definition to include compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. Um, there's a lot of background noise, guys. That's not coming from me. Anyway, the compulsive food behaviors, and for me, like compulsive food behaviors, including things like gum and exercise addiction, bulimia, um, anorexia, um, getting on the scale a thousand times a day. And when I do not engage in entire abstinence for those behaviors, um, I'm missing out on my connection with God. So I just was hoping some people could address how to discover abstinence within these um, 
expanded parameters because it's not always talked about. They're not always common behaviors for people. Um, and I just think, I just want to hear what you guys have to say. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie. Panelists? I could get started a little. I think, sir. You know, Katie, my my experience is really my best teacher in these matters. And let's say a person's got a plan of absence that's working, and they're doing the steps, and maybe they're already recovered. So, um, you know, I'm I'm on track for, for you know, I, if I'm sensitive and tuned in to how I'm feeling, and if I'm not feeling serene and content, then often what I'll do is try to, you know, either write about it or talk about it with another recovered person. Maybe do a, you know, a little audit, like. Like if if you know if I'm finding there's a if I'm finding that after I'm eating my food I'm not feeling quite as satisfied as I should be, then that that's my signal that maybe there's something about what I'm eating or the way I'm eating that's a problem. So, for example, um, when I would I used to love to read and eat, and I always thought that it wasn't a problem because since my food is weighed and measured, I'm not going to overeat, right? I would you know measure my food and put it excuse me, down on the plate and then begin to eat and then read because I just, I didn't even realize at the time, but somehow that was something very relaxing for me. But I noticed that every time I ate meals and read at the same time, I always seemed unsatisfied and the bargaining started in my mind. Like I would say to myself, like I would start to have this bargaining and was it really enough and maybe, I, you know. So that's when I realized and it took a little bit of, time and, and discussion with my sponsor that that's, that behavior is a trigger for me, that that behavior creates the effect in me so much of what my binge foods did. So then I need to just give it up and then write it down on my list of, I have a list of my, inside of my, my big book cover of behaviors that I don't engage in. So I think you were asking of how, how these evolve, and I think it just evolves from our experience and the more time we live recovered, these things will come up. And I think just living honestly and never ignoring, you know, the signals is a good way to uh, um, to stay honest about our food. I just wanted to mention, I might as well do this uh, here on the line, that I, I, you know, about a year ago I started to work and now I have, uh, the first time I ever worked, like through my lunch, like normally in the past, my work schedule allowed me to be home while I ate, but now I'm at work. And w one thing I noticed I started to do was I'd actually sort of be watching the screen as I was eating my lunch, you know, the computer screen. And, again, I start to have this feeling after I finished my lunch that it wasn't enough and did I pack it up, did I forget something and whatever it was. And then I realized, hey, watching the screen is the same, you know, eat while I'm eating my lunch is the same as reading while I'm eating. So, again, that and this is a very recent thing. So just being tuned in to that discontent feeling after I've eaten or, uh, the, you know, the feeling of, you know, that I wish I could have more or just having food on my mind is my signal that, that um, you know, check on my spiritual work is, if that's okay and my sponsoring enough, but also to get, give a little audit to my food plan and, and my plan of absence and see if that's working too. I hope that helps. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Esther. Any other panelists like to respond? Okay, I'll take that as a no. Uh, Ruth M., your turn. 
Hi, this is Ruth M. And my question is in general for all the panelists. Um, I heard reference this morning to the list of foods as being red light foods and green light foods. And the comment was made that there were no yellow light foods. And I'm just, I'm, I had never heard about these lists, red light, green light, until I started listening to Vision. And I'm just wondering, um, I would like to hear a little bit more about them, and I wonder if all of the panelists agree that there's no yellow light foods. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Panelists, like to respond? Uh, <clears throat> this is Janice. Thank you, Janice. Go ahead. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning to you and everyone. Well, I, I, you know, that came into my mind later on when I started hear, hearing that. And I do agree with red light and green light, okay? However, uh, some of my green light foods, you know, I became diabetic. And, um, you know, pineapple was uh, one of them. I'm just going to take that food. Um, that was a green light food. You know, I could have a certain amount according to the American Diabetic Association. But you see, American Diabetic Association handles a cross-section of the world, not necessarily compulsive overeaters. So as a compulsive overeaters, that, you know, that green light food became a red light food for me, for me, because that would create, even if, you know, if I had a half, first somebody would say take a hot cup, then there was a half a cup, uh, it wouldn't matter if it was a quarter of a cup. Um, that became a red light food for me. Why? Because it created a phenomenon of craving inside of me for more. And then, not even for more for that, it would it would set that allergy up. That you know, because pineapple was sweet for me, and um, that would set up uh, you know a craving in my side, the allergy for more of the same, or something different so I noticed when I put that down I didn't get the craving I didn't want more of peaches say peach that didn't set up any phenomenon of craving so that's what I can say from my experience sugar-free food you know I thought that was a green light uh, you know but of course that became the red light because I would eat not only just two or three I would eat the whole package if it was sugar-free um, so that's my experience with that, and I pass. This Thanks. is Du. Du, go ahead. Good morning. Great question, right? Like, um, why why did I make that statement that there's no yellow light? Um, I think there's someone um, muted with a cell phone. Um, yes, just a reminder, if everybody could mute, please, except for Du, and we'll have a clean line. Thank you. So so the big book is very clear. You know, if you go to page 44, it says, if you honestly want to and you find you can't quit entirely, or if when you have a little control of the amounts you take, you're probably alcoholic. You're probably a compulsive overeater. So what, what, what do people tend to uh, say with the yellow lights, right? Um, they say the, the, the red lights are, are foods that they absolutely, absolutely can't have. The yellow lights, they say, well, you know what, I, I get this sensation um, in my body. I get this kind
not my craving. Um, but, you know, I'm not done with that food yet. You know, I'm, I'm going to try to control um, eating that food for a bit while longer. Even though it's killing me, even though I'm feeling that there's something wrong with me, and the big book describes that. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. They like the buzz. They like the sensation, okay? But it's so escaping that, you know, they say, well, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure, so I'm going to put it down as a yellow light, you know. Even though I know that it's kind of like uh, killing me, it's kind of like leading me to other foods at times, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not done with that. So I'm not ready to, to, to put it as a red food which is a food that once I go off to the races, once I put it in my body, I know I can't stop. Then there's the green foods, which they term as safe foods. You know, you don't ever, 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 ever have a problem with those foods. You know, you put it in, you can, you can um, have the amounts that you're supposed to have. You don't get triggered. You don't want more. Um, you don't even think about those foods, right? So those are the safe foods. Those are green foods. Yellow foods, the reason why there's no yellow foods, because if you're trying to control those foods, it's already out of control. And part of our problem, part of being powerless over our foods, is that we are always trying to control. And if I'm trying to control it, it's already out of control. How do I know that? Because my life becomes unmanageable, my eating becomes unmanageable as a result of me trying to control. Now, all, all, the big book also says on this page, you need to be honest. Nobody else is going to tell you what those foods do to your body. Only you yourself know what those foods do to your body. So either you can go on, uh, you know, being in denial, okay, um, you know, making excuses, or you can face the facts and face the music and say, you know what, these, these foods are killing me. I need to put them down, you know, because nobody else is going to convince you. A person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. No one's going to convince you. The food is going to convince you. The food is going to bring you into a state of reasonableness. You know, um, when you feel the pain of that, then maybe you'll do something about it. But until then... You know, people say that because they want to be playing around with the food. That's what it equates. It equates that I want to continue to play with my food, you know. So you have that option, but it says here clearly in the big book, you have two alternatives. You either go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your intolerable situation, or you accept spiritual help and put down the binge foods. I hope that was helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth M., for your question. Anyone else with a question? Good morning. Yes, good morning. I have a question. And your name? Yes, I, hi, my name is Hina R. H-E-E-N-A. Hina R. Okay, one moment, Hina. Who else has a question? Deborah R. I didn't get that. Deborah R. Okay, Deborah R. Hi, Deborah. One moment. And who else is would like Gladys to... F. Gladys S. Anyone else? F. Okay, go ahead, Hina. 
Thank you. Um, can you hear me clearly? Can you hear me clearly enough? Yes, go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, I'm, I've been wondering about something um, for some time, and the last question and the answers really touch on it. And that has to do with the, qual the idea of uh, having pleasure while eating. Um, and how the experience of pleasure, just enjoying food, seems to me can sometimes activate the craving for more, just enjoying it. Um, and I'm really, I think, I guess I need to work more with my sponsor on this, but um, I'm wondering if somebody could speak to the question of pleasure. Like, are, is pleasure, um, necessary? To what degree is pleasure a problem for people with um, compulsive overeating? I think I think that's the question, more or less. Thank you, and I'll, I'll mute. Thank you, Hina. Panelists? It's Esther. I'll try to take a stab at that. Thank you. Hina, my experience has been, and I've only been around for about nine years um, and recovered for six of them, is that it's best for me when my food is, I think the word is perfunctory, like it's obviously food I like to eat because I don't eat foods that I don't like, right? Um, it's uh, nutritious and abstinent, and it just is. Um, I know that when I first came into program, I saw a lot of people taking um, their abstinent ingredients and making concoctions that would resemble things that they used to have in the past. Um, First of all, for some people, that in itself, those itself are binge foods. So if I'm able to somehow make a cake using only absent ingredients, but it's producing the same effect like the original, maybe not as much of the effect as the original binge food, but still yet an effect, so it's still a problem for me. Um, food for me is what I do to maintain my body because in order to serve my higher power, best I need to be in a healthy body and as I know better I'm going to do better my and my and sometimes my food plan does evolve now this idea of pleasure um associated with eating I do get that from newcomers and they say what's wrong with enjoying your food and I think for a normal person um enjoying food is shouldn't be um a problem just the same way I can go out and do a little shopping and, and maybe buy something that wasn't on my budget, a small thing, because I'm not in Debtors Anonymous. But when it comes to the food that I do, I am a, a compulsive overeater, albeit recovered, but I am a compulsive overeater, so I can no longer use food in that way. And the reason is is because when I used food to bring me that, you know, th those certain sensations or, you know, for pleasure, as you mentioned, it it's a behavior that blocks me from my higher power and i am so in need of his power to keep me recovered and and so dependent on that primary relationship for everything good that's in my life i cannot afford to to start now leaning on food to to bring me that that sensation i mean my feeling of peace and serenity and enjoyment in this world um cannot come from the whatever i put into my mouth it needs to come from my 
my relationship with my higher power. Now, here and there, I can enjoy other little pleasures of life because those other pleasures, as I mentioned, making a purchase or taking a walk or watching a sunset those, or having a relationship, those things do, in a sense, bring me pleasure, um, not to replace that relationship with my higher power, but in order to enhance my service of my higher power. But but food cannot can, will not do that for me, meaning if I... Um, if I uh, somehow start to do things with my food with with abstinent spices, I'm not gonna that um, those games that I play with my food and the, that way of making you know sort of increasing the the pleasure for my food is not gonna um, enhance my my relationship with my higher power. It's gonna take me away from my higher power. So that's why when it comes to food, you know my my best meals are the simplest meals. Um, I don't usually eat out. There are a couple places where I can eat. Everyone knows very clearly what I can and can't eat. But they always feel bad for you know that they weren't able to somehow embellish it and make it better. They always feel like they that they wish they could do more, you know, to make my food more interesting. And I always say the greatest gift you could do is just follow my instructions. And because I don't want the food to be interesting, I already did 40 years of that, and I already know the results of that kind of living. So I I hope that that's helpful for you and puts this idea of pleasurable eating in perspective and 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 that's my experience with that i'll pass thank you very much hina for your question thank you esther deborah r your turn morning everyone this is deborah and welcome to my vision for you family and enjoy this day um there was one lady, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name at the moment. Um, you mentioned that the pages, I think, 52, where they start the bedevilment to 83. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone, if I jump around here, for your shares this morning. They've meant a lot. But the one that mentioned page 52, I think, to 83, if she could confirm that page so that I can be correct when I pass this on to my sponsee. Thank you. That was Amy G. She had to step off the line, but yes, the bedevilments can be found on page 52. And of course, the promises uh, are on the bottom of page 83. Thank you. Thank you. Gladys, your turn. Uh, good morning. Um, this is Gladys. Uh, my question is, I was kind of in and out because I was getting ready for work. I was getting ready for work. Uh, however, I heard uh, one of the panelists mention about the beginning of abstinence start with, you know, with me. And I just kind of like wanted like a recap of exactly what am I supposed to do? Because I have a history of like some long term recovery, but recently it's just been like the most forty seven days abstinence, and i I end up picking back up okay, Gladys. I just want to make sure we have your question. Your question is. Could you rephrase your question, please? Okay. One of the panelists mentioned that the first part of giving abstinence begins with me. That part is up to me. So what am exactly am I supposed to do? How do I the beginning? Okay. Thank you for the question. Panelists, who would like to address Gladys, please? 
This is Do. Do go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's a great question. What do I do? You know, do I have do I have some some choices, right? I guess that's a question that you're you're asking. Um, page twenty three is going to answer that. Okay. Uh, it says on page 23, the first paragraph, it says, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. So, you know, if I never, ever, ever introduce my binge foods, it's saying that I am not going to trigger the phenomenon of craving. It is so simple that they call it academic, simple, academic, elementary. Okay, I don't introduce my binge foods. I don't cause the phenomena craving. But now there's there's a problem, right? Because that's my part. That's the part that I take care of, right? I look at my key food ingredients. I look at my binge foods. I see the foods that I go off to the races, right? Once I take that first bite, I know that I can't stop once I start, right? And then once I'm stopped, I can't stay stopped because there's a, a, another aspect to this, right? And it says, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So I have a faulty thinking, right? And my faulty thinking, well, it says, if you ask him why he started on the last bender, the chances are he will offer you what? Any 100 alibis, right? Or defenses. Sometimes these excuses justifications, rationalizations, have a certain possibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc of the alcoholic creates, drinking about creates, right? So it, it even says if you draw this fallacious reason, this faulty thinking, right, that we have, it will always bring you back to the food because it will always tell you the lies, the justifications, the excuses that this time will be different. And that's why we need to work through the steps. Once we get abstinent, right, is identifying those key food ingredients, not all foods, but those foods that cause you the allergy of the body, the one that, you know, once you start, you can't stop. You need to put those now. That's the first step. You're talking about what do you need to do? What's your part in it? Your part is to put down the food then God takes care of the rest. And you co-create with God, right? How do you co-create with God? You work through the steps. You do 2 through 12, right? It's getting connected to the higher power, working like your life depends on it, right? You clear away the wreckage of the past. You clear away those things that block you from accessing that higher power. And then you look at how to get restored, right? So it's going to take you step by step. So the first thing that you need to do is get together with a recover sponsor who has gone through this process of identifying those key food ingredients that cause you the allergy of the body, you know? So it says here, it's elementary, it's academic, it's simple, right? But the problem is that not everybody wants to give up their binge foods, okay? Not everybody wants to let go of that. And also the fact is that we have a mind that keeps telling us, I'm going to think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it until I get back to the food. 
You know, so we need to work the steps. We need to get through the steps in order to be relieved of that thinking. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Du. Thank you, Gladys, for that important question. Any other is, questions? Or do I hear Janice? Yes, please. I just want to briefly address that. I love Gladys's questions all the time. Okay, you know, people have come to me and they said, but you say I'm powerless. If I'm powerless, how can I put the food down? Well, you have to have that willingness. You know, we, for myself, I have to speak of myself. Before I came to OA, I already knew the foods that created me to have more and never be satisfied. I mean, I think most of us know, but we don't want to admit it like, like it was just said. I know donuts. I tried so much time, so many times my experience. Um, oh, I would have just go out and say, oh, please just get a, get six. And then I would say I'd freeze the rest, you know. I knew that the donuts created the, the uh, allergy to be activated. We know that, but we don't want to be honest with it before we came in. We're not powerless about putting the foods down, like whatever they are. They're not... I'm, I'm not powerless over putting asparagus down because I don't have a problem with asparagus. I knew that before I came in. But give me a donut. Oh, you know, maybe this will work. So I'm really not powerless about putting it down. I'm powerless over the allergy that that food or substance creates in me. That's what I'm powerless over it. So if you put it down and you say, gee, I don't have any craving." then you know that's a trigger food. I mean, we know that already, <laughs> you know, like I said. So that's a good question. With that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Janice. Any other questions that have not been addressed yet? This is Laura G. I have a question. Okay, Laura G. Go ahead. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Laura G., a compulsive um Overeater, um, just big blessings to. Uh, anyway, um, my question is that nope, I don't remember hearing anything about. Oh God, I heard so much. Let me focus. But the coming back, you know, a lot of times I always think about the newcomer because I feel like every time I'm on this line until I'm recovered and I can say that confidently, that I will just keep coming back. Because you know we all learn and process and get closer to higher power in our in our own way, and sometimes it takes some of us longer than others. So I was wondering if you would touch on to keep coming back, and uh, um, I think sometimes it it helps with um, the newcomer and understanding that just like the addiction that some of us have had our whole lives, which some of us are old, it's going to take just as long to replace it with another habit, which is recovered by not going to the substance anymore. And uh, so the question is if you could explain to keep coming back, maybe even touch on, like one of you said, you've been in nine years and you've been recovered six or something along those lines. So that keep coming back thing uh, holds true to that experience. And I hope that was clear. Thanks. Thank you, Laura G. Hi, it's Esther. I'd like to respond to that. Please, go ahead. I'm not sure you like my response, Laura, but but I, I'm not sure which. My experience was that I was in program for nine years, but back ten years earlier, 
I had come to Overeaters Anonymous, and thank God I didn't stay, because I'd still be sitting in that same meeting, although I think it's closed since, um, with a bunch of some overweight, some not overweight people who'd say things like, I've been in OA for 13 years, and I'm abstinent for seven weeks. Um, but keep coming back. I mean, it's not that we're kicking people away, and we want um, OA to be a place where people could come and, and recover and, and and their suffering. But sometimes the best thing for a compulsive overeater is to go out there and, and, and eat and binge like crazy and suffer um, because when they went, then when they come back, they're good and ready. And that was my experience. Um, I tried OA in the late 80s, and I didn't keep coming back. And once again, about five years later, and I didn't I, – also I went to a couple of meetings and I didn't come back – but by the time I came in, 10 years after that, I was good and ready. And although it was a few years till I got recovered, it was mostly because I hadn't met anybody who talked about the big book and who could take me through the steps. But my um, my uh, journey in those nine years was always upward, meaning I came in and I got abstinent. And, and uh, you know, according to, for example, what my sponsor was guiding me, I, I was abstinent, um, I had, at some point I had to break an absence because I wasn't recovered and then I met people who were and someone took me through the steps but I never um, at, at no point at that time was I unwilling to do what I was told and I and again I think it's because I, I had suffered a lot so when I meet people newcomers um, who come in and they're argumentative or they're not sure I you know I never try to convince anyone to stay I don't tell them you know you know come to meetings and maybe it'll all you know settle in by osmosis, I say to them, you know, go out there and let John Barleycorn do its job. Go out there and let all those binge foods convince you once and for all because sometimes it takes a good hard knock to get us to be willing to do what we have to do. So, again, don't misunderstand my words to say that we don't appreciate newcomers. Newcomers are is our um, lifeblood, right, because in carrying the message how we stay recovered – but if they're not ready, I don't know if it's a, a great uh, favor we do to them, keep them, keeping them, stringing them along in, in, you know, in bad meetings or, you know, just using OA as a place to unload and as a support group. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Esther C. Any other panelists want to respond? Okay, I'll take that as all. Is this due? Oh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I I also like to answer that question. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the big book is very clear. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffice. <laughs> so for me to um, say keep coming back, that's great. You know, I I love for people to keep coming back, but that's not enough. That's not enough to say keep coming back if they're not willing to do the work. Right? If they're not willing to give up their binge shoes, if they're not willing, it's, it's a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. I'm not going to convince anyone to give up any binge foods. I'm not going to convince anybody to change, right? Only the disease, the pain, that the food is going to be the greatest motivator to effectuate change. It's only when they're ready and they're willing. So some, some, it says a big book, that is a tedious process. We hope that you don't have to go through that, right? Um, to be beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten, and then maybe one day you'll get it, right? Um, 
yeah, I mean, if you want to come to the rooms of OA and take up space and take up time and, you know, not do the work, you're welcome to do that, right? Or you can accept spiritual help, go through the work, try recovery, try to see what that looks like. And if after you get recovered, you don't like what you have, you're welcome back to your misery, you know? So um, the big book is very clear. You know, if people don't want this, you can't drag them to get it. And people that want it, you can't keep them from getting this, right? So people that don't want it, you know, it's, it's like a master teacher <laughs> can't teach them. And people that want it, even Mickey Mouse can teach them, okay? So that's the difference. You know, it, it's like, yes, we, we want people to come and get this. We're not saying don't come back. You know, the doors are closed to you. But are you really willing and ready to do the work? You know, that's the real question. It says here that the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have death and weight. And I think um, a prior speaker uh, touched on it, right? That, you know, this is not about a drunkalog. This is not about a, uh, a dumping ground, right? This is about the solution. And, and the problem with OA a lot of the times is that people come in and, and they use OA as a diet club. They use OA for therapy. They use OA for, you know, other than what is here, which is the message of recovery. You know, so it says, you know, unless you're willing to get this, unless you're willing to put down the food, unless you're willing to do the work, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So you can keep coming back all you want. And, and, you know, I believe that you're not ready until you're ready. <laughs> you're not ready until you're ready. And, and the disease is going to get you ready. You know, for some it takes years. For some it takes months. For some it takes weeks. Some, some it takes days. It all depends on how far you are in that progression of the disease. For me, it took me a long time to get here. But once I got here and I was beaten and I was pummeled and I was bloodied, I was ready. I, you didn't have to tell me, where's the water? I'm going, I'm going after it. You know, I, you don't have to drag me there. I'm, I'm chasing after it. You know, so you don't have to worry about it because God's under control. He has all situations under control. He knows what people are going through, and he will meet each and every one where they're at. And so we don't have to get into the result business. We just have to do our part and get connected, and that's what this program offers. I hope that was helpful. Thank you, Du. Thank you, Laura G. And on that note, we're going to close this morning. Again, thank you to all four panelists, and, of course, thank you to those who uh, had questions this morning. Appreciate your participation in that way. We'll close from page 164, A Vision for, for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. 
Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.